Should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. So electrified looks different for everyone. Yup, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, Toyota is electrified diversified. Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero. Hey, Jim. Hey, Catherine. You're at the lake with Moses? I'm at the lake. He's swimming. Moses is swimming? He's turned from water-averse to water-loving really quickly. That's exciting. He's a real happy dog, just romping around, owning all the fish. Ooh, has he he killed anything yet? No, 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 no. Mm. He'll get there. Um, Okay, here's the question I have for you this week. I've been reading a lot of studies. Hydroxychloroquine is in the news again this week because someone else is claiming it works. Um, Mm -hmm. We are getting like constant incremental updates on vaccines. We're hearing about remdesivir. Um, Mm -hmm. And this is my question with all of these things, because we're debating like, does this work? Does that work? And this is going to be really, really important, especially for the vaccine development. How do we know what actually works? And I guess a broader way to say that is like, how do we know what is true? Great question. I have a simple answer for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I don't. I mean, that's the <laughs> fundamental uh, pursuit of science is you never, you never really arrive at, there are very few things we've arrived at as kind of definite truths of the universe. We're like always- gravity just, doesn't exist? Yeah, there are basic laws of- physics and nature but um we're constantly finding exceptions to most like do medicines that don't work in certain cases or have unexpected side effects or and these things play out and we figure it out years later so we're gonna have to be acting on a lot of this stuff before we are able to say for certain it's always gonna be like this looks pretty good so when a vaccine comes out we're gonna be like we're pretty sure this works yeah, you know, that's how it always happens. And then over years and decades of use, you carefully monitor for any unforeseen side effects. But mm-hmm. you, you know, the, it, you don't anticipate that because you don't have a plausible reason to think there would be one. But sometimes there are odd correlations that pop up that you couldn't have predicted and that you couldn't have known unless it had been in use widely for decades before you actually see it. So we will not have that luxury here okay well i need your help because i'm reading all of these news articles they keep talking about studies and you know at the beginning there was news that hydroxychloroquine worked right well (laughs) and now there's like news that it doesn't but that was there was some study right that was like this works and then there was news that that's how i interpreted it as a lay person i know there were problems with that original news were you watching dr oz (laughs) i was not watching dr oz um he was very adamant that it worked um and one french doctor who he'd been talking with was very adamant that it worked but right that was that was the extent of it at the beginning and then the president got a hold of it but even now for things like you know other treatments or developments in the vaccine i'm seeing a lot of news articles that like have a headline like this works or this shows promise or this does this or that but then mm-hmm. you start reading and it's like, mm, so many of these are like, well, it was a preprint, whatever that means, 
of a, and the study has not been peer reviewed. Mm -hmm. You know, they have all these qualifications on like the information they're giving. And what I think would be helpful to me is if you could walk me through like what these terms mean. Like when I'm reading stuff, how do I know what's like, okay, this is a really solid piece of information. And then how do I know when things are like, well, this like could be true, but it's not clear yet. Sure. Um, Preprint just means a scientist or a group of scientists have written up their findings and they're reporting it. That doesn't mean they're doing anything wrong, but it hasn't gone through peer review yet. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you're seeing preprints from huge groups of really prestigious researchers at good institutions who have great reputations. So that's different from a preprint that's reporting some wild finding from Mm -hmm. some obscure person who's never worked in this area before, but suddenly Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. has gone from studying economics to Mm -hmm. virology. So preprint is a rough draft. Yeah, so it's going to depend really on how wild and crazy the findings seem to be and where they're coming from. And then that's why journalists will kind of, you can take that draft and send it around and to other experts and do your own kind of peer review, which is what I do. Mm-hmm. So that there's good and bad there, right? Of yeah. some of it's, you know, making its way to mainstream news and it's really not ready for prime time, as they say. Yeah. And... In other ways, it's good because people are seeing these ideas and these papers before they make their way to the New England Journal of Medicine or other journals, which Mm -hmm. normally the peer review process involves like three people. Often it's people they know. It's kind of like longtime colleagues. The peer review process is a sham? Is that what you're telling me? (laughs) Um, No, not always. I didn't know it was your literal peers. Like, Is this like when I provide (laughs) references for, for a landlord or something and I'm like, call... My best friend. Yeah. She'll vouch for me. Yeah. In a lot of fields, it is because they end up reviewing each other's papers. And obviously, different people take it different degrees of seriousness. But if you're the one person, like, you know, how many experts on coronaviruses are there in the world? And they're, they turned out there were like 12. <laughs> but, um, you know, they're reviewing each other's papers. And I think there's a lot of collegiality around it like productive collaboration but if you start being the one who's really the stick in the mud you know Mm. what goes around comes around anyway uh, i'm not suggesting anything any malfeasance but when you can open the review up to like the entire scientific community really quickly and people actually engage with it that's also another thing is people don't get paid to be peer reviewers it's usually something they're just doing in their spare time they're like hey here's this really dense 20 page document you just got home from a long day of work could you sign off on this and make sure it's okay and Mm -hmm. often it's just way easier to just be like yeah looks good also it's interesting (laughs) that they say it's peer reviewed not peer approved you could just be like yeah no i i reviewed it (laughs) i looked at it yeah well the general philosophy of science has been mostly like if you have findings and you think they're real it'd be good to get them out there and the point of publishing this study is to get the information out there. And the peer review is just to like Especially sure. now, right? When it's like anything that could be helpful on treating patients with coronavirus or preventing people from getting it. Like we want to know that ASAP because every day thousands of people are dying. Yeah, that's definitely one school of thought. Um, What's the other school of thought? <laughs> I mean, other people think that you should not publish something until it's been more closely vetted. Because um, that's that- how you get 
like the president telling everyone to take hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, it's hard to know where to assign blame in something like that because there are multiple steps in the process where things get amplified uh-huh. from one person being like, hey, I gave this drug to eight people and they all survived. I should tell the scientific community about that. And there's yeah. theoretically nothing wrong with that instinct. In fact, possibly there's something right, but it can also like really get spun up into way more than it was ever supposed to be. And especially when people are doing that, you know, in bad faith. Right, right. Okay, so preprint is rough draft. Peer-reviewed is like, okay, some people have checked this out and it seems legit. Um, So remdesivir has been talked about as a treatment. And here is a study about remdesivir. It's in The Lancet, and the title is Remdesivir in Adults with Severe COVID-19, colon, a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-center trial. Are those all of the possible words that could be used to indicate? Yeah, those are all the words that we have in science. And when we want to make a study sound good, we put them all All in the name of the... Yeah, because we don't want people to read it. (laughs) No, but those are immediately signaling, and that's why they would title a study like that. They're saying, this is a big deal study. This is not just... Remdesivir, an actual study. (laughs) Well, other ones will say, you know, remdesivir in an an adult, a -hmm. case report. There's a spectrum of types of studies, which depending on the situation are not necessarily better or worse. Yeah. Between like one random observation and a really huge, rigorous experiment. Got it. Okay, so I think I know what most of these words mean, but why don't you run us through them? Randomized. Sure randomized so that means that when you want a huge population that isn't biased in some way so this is probably just everyone who came into the hospital was either it was randomly assigned to get it or not not just like people who already were older and sicker got the drug Mm -hmm. um, which might make it seem like the drug didn't have as much of an effect Mm -hmm. because those people were at higher risk anyway you know you really tried to eliminate any variable by just kind of blindly putting people into the group to either get the drug or to get a placebo. Okay. Double blind. What is double blind? Yeah. So you can have a single blinded experiment where just the patients don't know if they're getting the drug or a placebo. But when it's double blinded, even the doctors who are caring for them don't know. There are enough biases that are introduced by the very fact of someone knowing that they are getting some treatment. Right, because they might be like, I do feel better, I can tell. Exactly. And the doctors might be like, are you sure you don't feel better? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So the doctors don't even know, and you would only do this with something where, you know, you don't know really honestly if there's an effect or not. So the doctors are fine not knowing whether they're giving a sugar pill or or the actual drug. Got it. Uh, Speaking of sugar pill, placebo controlled. A placebo is just a, a sugar pill, right? Yeah, the stand-in thing so that you are able to... It's classically, it's easy to do with a, with a drug because you can actually have people take a pill. You know, it's harder to do with something like electroshock therapy or like exercise interventions where people know if they're going through it. Mm-hmm. But for drug trials, that's really important. Is electroshock therapy still a thing? 
some people use it, I believe. Not my area of expertise. Just saying that there's um, some things will never be able to be placebo controlled, right? Right, right. Multi-center. And I should note that it's spelled C-E-N-T-R-E, if that makes a difference. Well, this is The Lancet, the most British of medical journals. <laughs> Multi-centra. So there can be distributions, um, like the hospital where I did my internship had a lot of older people who were generally pretty educated on their health. And if you just did a study at that hospital, it would probably be expected to have different results than in a hospital with a totally different population mm -hmm. um, and different people administering it, you know, even when they're trying their best to be double-blinded and randomized, the more, you know, you can grow that population of patients and do it at many mm -hmm. different places, the fewer variables, like, the, you know, you're just minimizing any chance of a random correlation. Got it. So all of these are just ways to try to remove undetectable or uncertain bias uh, exactly from the study so that you know like okay when we say remdesivir definitely helps people recover from covid we did all of these things to try to make sure it wasn't something else happening yes exactly you want to be as objective as possible and especially when you're studying something like remdesivir especially hydroxychloroquine which we've studied more than any other drug these are loaded really? things Wait, and a lot of people is the most studied Drug? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's people's objection too to continuing to, people calling to continue studying for it. Studying is we've we've put a lot of resources into that. Wow, but people have these biases. So if you're going to study it, you need to be willing to say, okay, I am going to take part in this as a clinician, but I'm not going to know who's getting what. I'm going to report people's outcomes right. just as I see them, and then someone else sitting behind a, you know control room board with all the data, we'll analyze it, and then mm -hmm. we'll see if there was an effect. And if you do it any other way, then you're you're introducing these biases that just make it sometimes worse than nothing. Right, right. What are the things that we actually do know right now? We know that hydroxychloroquine doesn't really help, and we do know that remdesivir helps a little bit. Like, what have all of these studies so far told us? They have told us, I, th I think, just what you said. Remdesivir may be helpful to some subset of patients. There's debate right now as to how widespread it, it should be used. Um, and hydroxychloroquine has not borne out. Um, there were some interesting observations in the beginning reported by some people, some of whom at least had some serious bias. <laughs> Um, and then when we tried to do the actual trials, it didn't bear out. Mm -hmm. So in either case, we we're, we don't have a silver bullet drug. We don't have a game-changing drug. Um, the most important drug so far has been a dexamethasone or a steroid, which we've talked about a little bit just in, in trying to blunt people's immune responses. Mm -hmm. Like it's not a new drug. It's very old. But at the same time, it's only going to be useful in specific situations at just the right time right so these are all tools like we're building a toolbox of things that will gradually make this disease somewhat more survivable am i right that like there's been much much more 
news about preprint, non-peer-reviewed studies. Like, the, it feels like there's been much more news. Like, I'd never heard the word preprint before, and maybe I just wasn't paying attention. But are we getting a lot more news about more tenuous studies right now? Or am I just yes. sort of paying attention more? <laughs> yes, people, by its nature, news wants to be focused on the hot new thing, and people are not waiting to report on early reports of findings. So it's becoming more like these scientists are saying and not always waiting to go through the peer review process. So it's not just you. That is something new. And I think science is kind of potentially changing forever because of accommodating that. We used to never, journalists just did not report on preprints. We waited until something was published. What do you mean that science is changing forever? Well, like peer review it had already is been out. sort of <laughs> it had already been sort of changing um mm -hmm. in that social media allows for this really rapid peer review and so i have a better sense as a journalist of whether a preprint is valid than i would in the old days by just looking at a medical journal as soon as it was published mm -hmm. and knowing that three people had seen it and signed off on it as publishable though for the public slash people like me it seems like actually if that process is happening more in public on social media and th these studies are being reported on at earlier stages, it actually requires the public to have more literacy about how studies are done and what, say, yeah. a preprint means or multi-center or whatever, you know, like, it, and, and, and I'm sure that's happening. I mean, we're all learning so much about, like, basic science through this process. Yeah. But it does mean that we kind of all have to level up <laughs> as like citizens on how the scientific process works so we can actually interpret the news we're hearing. I think that's really important. Yeah. Just a few years ago, probably a lot of people would hear, oh, a study said, a study proved it. And that right. was enough. Right. <laughs> right. And now we should all know that that's just not, you know, it's about like saying a senator endorsed it. <laughs> Okay, so, well, okay, this is fascinating and helpful. We're going to call Ed Young, who has this huge new story out documenting the brutal process by which, you know, we have failed so badly um, containing the virus. I will say just before we bring him on, one of the things I do feel like that these, a kind of um, underlying assumption of us all hanging on all of these studies especially the vaccine or, you know, treatments. It feels like the reason those are so important to us and we're, there's so much focus on drugs and treatments is because we've failed at containing it. Mm -hmm. We're just in a situation where treatment is in many ways our best hope because we've kind of given up on it not spreading. Yeah. And I mean, we love to talk about the new thing, right? Yeah. I can't go on the news and they're like, hey, Dr. Hamlin, what's the latest with masks? They still work, still really effective. How about distancing? Is that still super, super effective? And right. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hamlin. No, they want to know about right, the Right, right. We have to have something new to talk about. Yes, that's why they call it the news. Ed does a great job of not falling prey to that. I think that's something I'm always right. pushing back against is trying not to just be talking about whatever the new thing is and yeah. keep talking about the things that work. Yeah. 
We actually have so much of the information that we need already. We know how to control this. Well, that's exactly, I think that's exactly what Ed talks about in his piece. So we should call him because I think basically what he is asking and has been asking for many months is given that we have all the information (laughs) that we need, we know how to prevent this. There isn't anything shocking or surprising uh, about just the basics of transmission anymore. And there isn't anything surprising about many of the ways that this is played out, who has been most vulnerable, etc. Plus, he has good animal facts. Yeah, we should ask him about animal facts, given my... Always something new. new. Both of our newfound interest in animal friends. Hey. Welcome back. Thank you. So I was just talking to Jim about, I've been trying to follow studies about treatments and about the vaccine. And it feels like we're all hanging on every tiny, you know, medical development. Yeah. But it feels like the reason we are doing that is because we've accepted that coronavirus is now basically endemic in the U.S. Like we're so far past containing it that we're having to pin our hopes on miracle drugs or a sort of miracle medical solution to what began as a social problem. Maybe that's an unfair way to say it. But No, no, I, I don't think that's unfair. I think the only thing I would push back gently on with that is that this is a, a recent thing. I, I think it's actually our, our default posture. I think that people do gravitate towards these biomedical solutions. There's this sort of techno-utopian view that... Um, that more research and some kind of highfalutin development is going to address problems. But in many ways, these advances are kind of sticking plasters. They they don't address the foundational rot that has allowed lots of marginalized groups, from Black people to Indigenous people to disabled and elderly and poor people to be disproportionately hit. That can be solved through social interventions, with things like universal healthcare, things like sick pay for all. Like, it's not rocket science. Those are measures that you could put in and that wouldn't have to wait for something biomedical. But we look for that silver bullet because I think it's almost easier. It absolves us of responsibility for looking deeply at the systemic underpinnings of these crises and trying to actually fix them. Right, right. Yeah. I write about this in the big piece that this minuscule fraction, I think it's 2.5% of America's healthcare spending, which is the greatest of any comparably wealthy nation, is spent on public health. So what we're doing is we're spending a huge amount of money to treat people who are already sick and almost no money on preventing them from falling sick in the first place which when you think about it is ludicrous. Like the, the entire point of healthcare is to maintain health for as long as possible. And the best way to do that is through prevention. And that's what public health is. It is the world of yeah. things like sanitation, of vaccination, of testing and, and tracing and isolating. Right. But s- sanitation and prevention is boring. Right. And No, it's not. And like getting in a crisis and then having to solve it and the hero comes to save the day with some sort of innovation is exciting. I, I mean, yes, I actually think that's true. Like public health people lament this all the time, that public health is is distinctly not sexy. Right. Oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, and it's especially not that 
when it works, I think that's the problem. Um, someone phrased this to me beautifully, that like when public health works, all that you see is the miracle of a normal, healthy day. It's only when it doesn't work, then everything goes to pot and you realize just what you were missing. But it's really hard to internalize that. You, people take right. their health for granted. And yeah, I, do, I don't think it's a stretch to say that like, so much of our so much of our fiction like our cultural norms involve stories of like people do stupid things and a hero comes in and saves the day right like right you could That's also the just way stop works. people from doing the stupid things in the first place but then you're being a buzzkill <laughs> nanny state socialist right <laughs> taking away my soda strapping a seatbelt on you whilst pulling that cigarette out of your mouth you know i mean these were the things that I was sitting in a radiology reading room, reading CT scans and MRIs, and I was just, I felt like I really wasn't helping with the problems. And then I stopped doing that. And I went and studied public health mm -hmm. and got into writing about this stuff. Yeah. And I feel like it quickly becomes political, right? Mm -hmm. Like it's hard to advocate for these things without sounding like it's aligning with certain political incentives even if your actual incentive is really just to keep people healthy so i think a lot of this does boil down to your values and how you see the world now i would argue that um you know that acting in the collective good and looking after other people who are not you is a moral choice and i think that the extreme opposite of that you know, this sort of rugged individualism, this neoliberal attitude, every person out for themselves, if you get sick, it's your own fault, is not only wrong, but, but counterproductive. It, it creates a lot of the conditions that allow this virus to spread. You know, I think that other people can feel free to disagree with that, but I think that is the right analysis given this problem. Now, that being said, let's remember that in the main, People have taken public health actions that they were totally unfamiliar with, like social distancing and wearing a mask, to a degree that I really did not anticipate. Like these things are not like universal, but they're certainly much more commonplace given that they did not really exist in this country before this year. Mm -hmm. Now, imagine what people could have done and what people might be doing if these measures hadn't been so highly politicized, if the, if the president hadn't turned them into yet another front on this ridiculous culture war, I think we would be in a much better place. I think that yeah. people are remarkably able to learn new patterns of behavior, to question the assumptions behind what they're doing, and to act in this collective, responsible way. But the ridiculous thing about what's happened with America in this pandemic is that people have shown the willingness to do that, like, but have had to almost hold the center in the face of constant misinformation and contradictory messages from some of the most popular media programs of the day to the highest echelons of government. Right. One of the biggest questions for me is what capacity do we actually have to learn from this experience? Um, I don't know. But like this question of how 
we change the perception of public health as part of that? Like, will people understand that this is what it takes to keep them safe? Does the fact that Tony Fauci is now a household name with merchandise available around him, does that change things? Now, this is what we're talking about. This is the rebranding we need with like the whatever has been done to make Fauci like a merchandisable figure is what needs to happen right. with public but, health. But is, maybe it is happening. Maybe that's a sign that it is happening. Uh, okay, so so maybe it is. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna buzzkill again. But is this not also the most like individualist way you could try and address a collective deficit, right? Yeah, yeah. Be like Fauci is act. There's this one guy who's actually the hero. Right, yeah. right. Well, that's yeah. how we rebrand everything, right? Right. We get single individuals to drink Gatorade, and then all of a sudden, everyone's drinking sugar water. Right. And Michael Jordan drinks I, it. I mean, it's it, it's almost a parody of itself, right? Everyone is saying we need public health to be important. We have focused on healthcare that prioritizes the individual rather than the community for way too long. So, how are we going to react to that? We're going to turn one individual in that community into like the figurehead for everything and like deify that person now i'm not saying that tony fauci doesn't deserve it he's pretty great but a lot of people are working on this people who work tirelessly yeah. in local and state public health departments people who work in university jobs like all the people that jim and i have interviewed in our various pieces and that you've interviewed on this podcast like there are thousands of people who are burning out right now so like I'm thrilled that more people know who Tony Fauci is, but I think that it doesn't address this systematic um, ignoring and neglect of public health. Right. Ed, we're going to let you go in a minute because I know you have a lot to do and you, I'm sure you're doing a lot of interviews today, but speaking of burnout, you sound burned out, Ed. <laughs> um, not to, I'm, I may be projecting. I, okay, so I, I had a week off recently and I felt a lot better because of that. Genuinely, I'm in a weird space because I'm really thrilled at how well this piece is doing. I'm really thrilled at the response to it. I'm really glad it's helping. It is a weird feeling to have a lot of the reaction to a new piece be I'm going to read it, but I need to shore up the emotional energy to do it. And I think it's going to be really depressing. Like, I get it. People should absolutely look after themselves. And I know that it's a difficult read. It was a really difficult thing to write. I think all I'm saying is it's a little sad to know that your name is associated with this feeling of, Oof. you know, like, um, <laughs> I would love to get back to a position when I can write about fun, fascinating bits of natural history. But, well, you know, yeah. we are where we are. Um, we are where we are. On that note, Ed, I have a question for you. Yeah. Unrelated to coronavirus. <laughs> there are things that are unrelated to coronavirus. I'm delighted. Yes, yes. <laughs> Tell me of these things. I, it is sort of related because in this time I picked up a new hobby which I've tried to convince Jim to get into, but he's not really coming around yet. Um, that is the hobby of birding. Oh, right. Yeah. Amazing. I have befriended a morning dove who lives in my backyard. And I recently had a breakthrough with this morning dove. I put out seeds for him and he comes visits every morning. Mm -hmm. And 
just this weekend, mm-hmm. and for the last three days, we've reached a new stage in our relationship. He eats seeds out of my hand. This is amazing. I love it. Is it? Yeah. Well, I don't know. I think it's lovely. <laughs> Who knows where it's a good idea for, for your morning dove friend, but I think... This- well, that was my question. Am I just... <laughs> do you know anything? Do you have any good morning dove facts? And also, am I like creating a problem for this bird or is this just a great sweet friendship i genuinely don't know but i'm totally happy to accept it as a sweet little magical moment right now who am i to burst your bubble oh no i'm definitely diseasing this bird somehow (laughs) you've been washing your hands a lot though okay well ed thank you for your tireless coverage of this if there's any way that we can support you in getting back to delight as your area of expertise, let us know. Thanks, guys. Always good to talk to you guys. Appreciate it. Thanks, Ed. Take care, Ed. Bye. Bye. Jim, are you burned out? I am. No, I'm doing. Sometimes it does feel futile when so much depends on politics. Yeah, like you can communicate the science as much as you want, but it doesn't like in the end, it's not in your control. Yeah, there's only so much that you can control. And you burn out when you, um, I think, push too hard against uh, the things that you can't control. Walls that are unmovable, yeah. And I think that's happening kind of widely in medicine right now. Like We talked about scientific publications being different right now, and Mm -hmm. things might be changing. Uh, Hopefully this is sort of a reckoning for why our medical system is so bad, why our healthcare system is so so much more expensive than any other country, and Mm -hmm. not any better than other developed countries. And because we don't focus on keeping people healthy on prevention and public health measures and the doctors who are in the system are widely saying they're burned out you know right they're in a career of making excellent money with a lot of job stability security and and better hours than physicians used to have and yet saying they're burned out because i think they just are seeing the same chronic issues and people keep coming back and from people who are experiencing that they just don't feel like they're seeing a substantive impact over time what we need is to change the system and, you know. I don't understand. It's so illogical, like financially, right? It's all about the perspective you're coming from, right? You make money if you're selling people healthcare, And if you create some incentive for a society to keep a population healthy, then it starts to make sense to not spend so much money on right. Band-Aids. And but our incentive structure is all set up around charging people for drugs and procedures and stuff like that instead of like not (laughs) them never needing those things we should talk more about this because there were some there have been movements you know recent years and as part of obamacare and other things to try to pay hospital systems fixed amounts per Mm -hmm. person and then if they can keep a person from having to spend a ton of time in the hospital or from bouncing back quickly then they actually save money like mm-hmm. harnessing the free market innovation to try to keep people healthy. Mm-hmm. There's some interesting work being done in that space. It, it's not hopeless. I'm sure there's a lot of like fear or fear mongering about denying people care. Yeah. Like incentivizing yeah. people to not give care is probably. It's a fine line to walk. Yeah. But I think that will be the future of how we do things in this country. Yeah. You think this is going to change how the healthcare system is structured? It actually could because you're seeing a lot of healthcare systems start to feel the financial pressure of this, or at least report mm-hmm. that they are. 
taking big hits and potentially hospitals going out of business. Mm-hmm. And there will be places where we have to say, listen, if we want healthcare in this area, we're going to have to, you know, uh, we have to rethink what that means and how you deliver it in a way that's not contingent on a small number of elective procedures to keep the hospital afloat. I think doctors just like really do want to keep people healthy at the end of the day. Yeah. And yeah. they don't burn out when they feel like they're actually being helpful. Anyway, um, what are you going to do this week? <laughs> I'm about to go on um, the Today Show Australia. What? Yeah. Aren't you supposed to be taking a break? Uh, you know, going on TV shows for me is fun. It's just fun. <laughs> they put in uh, email urgent today show interview request and i'm like oh cool the today show and they're like hello from australia surely you aren't denigrating australia no 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 i i thought katie kirk was still in charge of the today show you're you're a little behind (laughs) anyway i will talk to you next week uh this show was produced today by kevin townsend and you can write us at social distance at theatlantic.com you can get a subscription to The Atlantic at theatlantic.com slash support us. And uh, I will give you a call next week. I will be waiting by the phone. <laughs> I hope you have a great week. I hope you do as well. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye. Bye. So should we go electric? I think we should go electrified with Toyota. Electrified? Electrified means options. Yes, we could go all electric with a Toyota BZ4X, but then there are hybrids like Grand Highlander. Or we could do something in between like a RAV4 plug-in hybrid. So Toyota is electrified diversified? Yep, and with more options for reducing carbon emissions, the closer we all get to Toyota's Beyond Zero vision for the future. Exactly how much coffee have you had this morning? Learn more about our Beyond Zero vision for the future at toyota.com slash beyondzero.